Our reading for today is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. Listen now to the word of the Lord. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Welcome. Uh, Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you again uh, for this day that you have made. And we ask now in the the hearing of your word, help us to listen for your word. And in that hearing, help us to obey. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is now the uh, fifth sermon in a series of sermons on Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. The primary issue that Paul has been addressing is whether people who have faith in Jesus Christ, evidenced by the reception of the Spirit, must also keep certain aspects of the Jewish law or not. And Paul says repeatedly and emphatically in the first several chapters, no. He insists that when you add anything to the gospel, to faith, that you have essentially destroyed the gospel, the good news. And so he's been making the case that there is only one gospel, the one that he received by revelation, the one that has been agreed upon by all the apostles, the one that requires no other requirements other than faith in Jesus Christ. And so using a series of rhetorical questions, Paul has been harshly attacking their embrace of another so-called gospel, and appealed instead to their own experiences of the Spirit that contradicted their wanting to keep the law. Uh, Last week, Pastor Han uh, led us through the first half of the chapter, reminding us that faith makes us good enough, that faith is enough, and nothing more 
is needed. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross ends the curse of sin and gives to us the blessings of Abraham fully fulfilled and given to Jews and Gentiles alike by faith and faith alone without any additional requirements of the law. And in today's reading, having now argued from Scripture that the righteousness of Abraham is by faith, Paul now kind of shifts his tone. Uh, Remember earlier he had called the Galatians foolish and bewitched, but now he softens his his approach and calls them brothers. And so he's trying to take a, a, a different tact here. He offers what he now calls a human illustration and a word study to back that up. He says that once you make a covenant or a will, you can't change it. Now, of course, we know that um, any legal document can be changed if both parties agree to that. But his point is that once you make a covenant, once you make a will, a testament, it has legal and binding force. And the covenant that God made with Abraham was done unilaterally, without condition, by God. And that God is not going to revoke that. And Paul highlights two of those key promises that God made to Abraham. He says in verse 8, last week he said, And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And then in verse 14, he had written, So that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit. And so the promises that Paul is talking about here is that Gentiles would be justified by faith. This is not something new that, you know, Jesus made up. That Gentiles and Jews, that all would receive the blessings, was right there from the very beginning in the promises God made to Abraham. And secondly, that all would then receive the spirit. So those are the promises made to Abraham for all from the very beginning. And he goes on to say that this double promise was made to Abraham and to his seed. And Paul here does a little word study. He says that when God made a promise with Abraham, it was with Abraham and his offspring, or seed, singular. And he says that that offspring, that singular seed, is Jesus, his one true descendant. Now, as you know, as much as I love word studies, um, Paul's word study here is not entirely persuasive. It's true that God made a promise to Abraham's offspring or seed and that the word is in the singular. But the problem is the word seed or offspring even um, is a collective singular, right? In English, we have other words like fruit or deer or sheep, um, So you can talk about those words, and depending on the context, you can determine whether or not it's a singular or plural, right? A farmer might say, I'm going to go buy some seed. I don't know if a farmer would actually say that, but if they were to say that, right, you know they're not talking about they're going to buy like one grain of alfalfa seed. They mean, I'm going to get a lot of seed, right? So depending on the context. so, So it's not entirely clear when this promise is made to Abraham and his seed that it was necessarily talking about a singular seed, but that's the way Paul is reading it. That's the way Paul's reading it. And then he goes on to say that this promise given to Abraham and to his seed, which he points to as Christ, was made first. 
that this promise was made hundreds of years before the law was given and therefore has precedence over the law. That nothing that came later, all the additions of the law, cannot change, cannot annul, cannot alter in any way the earlier promises made by God. That's the argument. Paul says that the promises God made to Abraham and to his seed was first. It was ratified by God unconditionally, and therefore it stands. And nothing, nothing new, no law about circumcision or diet that was added years and years later can change God's promise. Salvation by faith is not something new that is introduced by Christ. It's been there from God's first thought. That's Paul's argument. And I think this is an important reminder for us because you know, many Christians mistakenly, I think, think that the law came first, right? We associate the law with the Old Testament and then Jesus comes and he brings grace in the New Testament, right? We, we, we have this sort of uh, idea that first there was the law and then came grace. For example, in the Gospel of John, John writes, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Right? So we think, yeah, Moses, the Old Testament law, but then now Jesus came and we have, we have grace. Um, but the law goes only back to Moses. There was a lot of stuff happening before Moses, especially with Abraham. So if you go back to Abraham then, now it's not about the law. It's about faith. So John probably should have written here something like, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth was first extended to Abraham, Abraham, and then finally and fully realized in Jesus Christ. Right? That would be a little more precise statement. Grace, and then the law, and then grace again. That's really the biblical story. Now, I know that more than a few of you uh, must be disappointed by last night's game, though I know that at least one of you is very happy about it. Um, But as the World Series is about to start, uh, I was reminded of a baseball illustration uh, given by Mark Knoll in an article entitled Diamond Devotional uh, way back in 1989. He writes, For two glorious summers, the Chicago Cubs taught fans the fundamentals of Reformation theology. First, the Cubbies made a trade for Vance Law and started him at third base. Then a few months later, marvelous to say, they brought first baseman Mark Grace from the minor leagues. There they were, right next to each other in the batting order. Law and Grace. And they were in the proper order too. First Grace batting in the fifth position And then law. For as Paul explained to the Galatians, God gave grace to Abraham before he gave Moses the law. And there they stood in the baseball diamond, grace and law, holding down the opposite corners of the infield. Opposing batters would smash the ball to third, where law would knock it down and throw it over to first for an out. Reformation theology in action. Law to grace to retire the side. I think that's good. Grace was first. Grace came first. And then the law. 
So then the logical question for us and that Paul raises himself is, well, if that's true, then what's the point of the law at all? Why have the law at all? If the law cannot give the spirit, if the law merely pronounces a curse on those who try to live by it, if the law cannot bring life in any way, if it cannot add anything to the promises given by God to Abraham, then why did God even bother with the law at all? It's a good question. And Paul responds by saying that it's because of transgressions and that it was a temporary and inferior intermediary measure until Christ. It's, it's unclear what Paul means exactly by because of transgressions. But Paul says it was an intermediary, inferior thing to kind of tie us over unto the fulfillment in Abraham's offering, offspring, Jesus Christ. Now, in the Reformed tradition, uh, we usually think about the law in terms of Calvin's three uses of the law as our, you know, uh, kind of a principle in thinking about the, uh, the use of the law, right? So, uh, just as a reminder, first, uh, Calvin said that the law acts as a mirror to reveal sin to us. Paul writes in Romans 7, 7, for example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the law, by revealing to us, holding up a mirror to us, to teach us what sin is, it then makes us realize we need help. And so the law then has the effect in that revelation to lead us or to drive us to Christ. Martin Luther said it this way, the true use of the law is this, that I know that by the law I am being brought to an acknowledgement of sin and am being humbled so that I may come to Christ and be justified by faith. That's the first use. The second use is that it has a civil use to restrain evil. The law helps to keep order. It acts as a deterrent to evil, offers appropriate punishment for wrongdoing. And so laws can be good and useful, right? I mean, we need laws, like, like traffic laws, so that there's, you know, chaos without it, right? So that we can play games fairly. And third, the law for those who are in Christ then can act as a guide now, because you are now in Christ, it gives you a guideline then on how to live, right? The Ten Commandments, for example, teaches us then, now this is how I can love my neighbors. So, Laws can be useful in revealing sin and restraining evil and in guiding our behavior. But as Paul insists, the law are only temporary and their purpose is only temporary until Christ has come and Christ has come. He further describes the law in this passage as holding us captives as a guardian until Christ should come. So it's not that the law is bad. It's that it cannot give to us life. And most importantly, it's no longer needed because Christ has come. The whole point of it was to be there until Christ could come. And since Christ has now come, we don't need it anymore. Because Christ breaks us free, not only from sin, but from the bondage of the law. The law is it's, it's like scaffolding on a building that you need. But once the building is done, you, you don't need it anymore. 
It was just temporarily there to help you get to what you wanted to get to. For example, to use an illustration from civil law, laws are made um, in this country and in most places, I suppose, uh, in response to something that has gone wrong or something that needs fixing. Sometimes they're put in for a temporary problem that gets resolved, but then once it's solved, the law stays a law because no one bothers to just kind of get rid of it or to repeal it because it's no longer necessary. For example, there is supposedly still a law in the books in Iowa that it is illegal for a man with a mustache to kiss a woman in public. No one bothered to repeal that law. There is supposedly a law still in the books in Missouri that it is illegal to drive down the highway with an uncaged bear in the car. (laughs) Apparently there was a time when this was a problem. When driving down the highway with an uncaged bear, like someone had to tell you, you can't do that. (laughs) Right? And for whatever reason, it was not okay for a man with a mustache to kiss his wife in public. Surely we do not need that law anymore. You are freed from the law. Go ahead and grow a mustache and kiss your wife in the streets. Right? But at the time when they made these laws, they made sense. They seemed like a good idea, at least to someone. It addressed some particular temporary problem. But they were temporary. They served their usefulness, and they're no longer needed. I mean, that's the nature of law. That's the nature of law. And, you know, churches are not immune from this. Depending on what kind of church you grew up in, you probably had all kinds of laws that were either written or kind of, you know, unwritten, but you kind of had to know the the law, right? Churches had laws, assumptions about what it was to be a Christian. So there were laws regarding drinking, regarding smoking, whether you could listen to rock music or how hard, you know, right? There was like uh, degrees of rock music that you could listen to. R-rated movies. Can you wear makeup? Hair length for boys. Skirt length for girls. And on and on and on. Right? There were these laws. And if you didn't follow the laws, then you were excluded. These are temporary laws. Conditioned by the times. They don't give you life. They don't breathe the spirit into you. They hold you captive, right? They're like guardians. If you're a student, or if you can remember when you were a student, remember the last day of school? Think back to the last day of school. Remember when you finished your last paper, took your last test, and you knew that tomorrow you can sleep in, that you could have a carefree summer. Okay, I know nobody has a carefree summer anymore, But when I was a kid, like after the last day of school, you had the whole summer to goof around and to do nothing, right? Remember the the joy of finishing up a semester or a year, a school year? Remember going to the bookstore and and selling back your calculus book, getting $2 even though you spent $100 on it? But that's okay because you never have to look at calculus again. 
Right? That, that freedom. You don't need that anymore. You have been freed. Why would you go back? Why would you go back? You have been freed. It's not necessary. The law was there to train, to prepare you for the coming of the Messiah. And the Messiah has come. There's no need to go back to the law. J.D. Greer uh, gives this illustration. He says that there are two ways of keeping a balloon afloat. One is that you fill it with air, and each time the balloon falls, you, you smack it and push it back up into the air. That's one way of doing it. But another way of keeping the balloon afloat is to fill it with helium. Then you don't have to smack it. It just stays up there. It's filled with something that keeps it afloat. Paul is saying, instead of beating yourself up, instead of smacking yourself with the law each time you break the law, be filled instead with the Spirit. Let faith guide your life. When you were little, you needed someone to tell you when to go to bed, to eat your vegetables, and you probably needed it. But not when you're grown up. You don't want someone telling you to do those things now. You don't want to go back. You've been freed by faith, so live by faith. Live by the Spirit. Don't go back to the law and rebind yourself. That's what Paul is getting at. And so Paul says, because we have been freed, because we are no longer under the law, because Christ has come, because we are justified by faith, We are therefore all sons or children of God in Christ. That's the conclusion now. For for, for the three chapters, this is where he's getting at. By faith, by faith alone, regardless of your particular identity, we are all one offspring of Abraham and therefore heirs of the promises given to Abraham by God. In faith, Paul says, in Christ, having been baptized into Christ, having put on Christ, we have this new identity in Christ. A new identity, not based on law, not based on ethnicity, not based on social status, not based on gender, but on Christ and in Christ. Our identity is conditioned on this singular fact. You are all one in Christ. You are all one in Christ. There is therefore neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, this is a favorite verse among many churches today. It's often quoted to argue for equality in the church in terms of leadership and relationships. I don't think it's wrong to highlight shared responsibilities like that, but I don't think that's Paul's primary point. It's not about an equality of service or of flattening gender roles in the church and at home. His concern here is primarily about unity and the oneness in Christ rather than addressing sort of um, directly our modern notions 
of equality. And notice what he does here with these three pairs of contrasts. He says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? There is neither Jew nor Greek. Your ethnicity, your religious background does not disqualify you in any way from the unity and oneness in Jesus Christ. Neither slave nor free. Your socioeconomic status is no barrier to the oneness and unity in Jesus Christ. And then we expect him to say there is neither male nor female. That gender distinctions do not keep us from fully sharing in the oneness and unity in Jesus Christ. But Paul changes the pattern. He writes, instead of neither male nor female, he says, there is no male and female. Male and female. Why does he do that? Why why doesn't he keep the pattern of neither nor? It's because he wants us to hear this phrase, male and female. Male and female. Do you hear that? Male and female? What do you hear when you hear that? What do you hear? What does it remind you of, male and female? Yeah, Adam and Eve. It points us back to creation, right? God created human beings in his image. Male and female, he created them. Paul is directing our attention back to creation because he's saying, in Christ, you are a new creation. You are a new creation in Christ. Just as God created male and female in creation, so now in Christ we are recreated. We are made new creations in Christ, male and female. The old is gone, the new has come. I'm a new creation in Christ. So, you know, Paul's emphasis here isn't, he's not trying to negate our differences as human beings. Rather, he's emphasizing our oneness and unity in Christ. That being in Christ is far more important. It's not that our particular identity markers are being obliterated. He's not saying, you know, there's no such thing as Jews or Gentiles. There's no such things as, you know, Egyptians or Americans. There's no such things as, you know, rich people and poor people. That's not what he's getting at. He knows there are those differences. We know them. Those distinctions remain as markers. But they are not going to serve as boundary markers to keep others out. They're not going to serve as the principal identity marker of who we are. Our fundamental identity rests in the fact that we are in Christ. We are in Christ. It redefines who we are. You know, for me, this is an especially important word for today. When there is such divisiveness in this country and in our churches, rooted in these three primary differences, right? Racial, economic, and gender. Paul rejects what we might think of today as gender politics, identity politics, and calls us instead 
into this new identity in Jesus Christ. I think this is a rebuke to all the churches that get so associated with a particular political view or with a particular position on a social issue that you cannot be a part of the body, that you cannot be a part of that community, that you cannot be a part of the body of Christ unless you hold those same views. When we do that, we're just reintroducing the law of circumcision. Unless you hold to this particular position, you cannot be a part of the oneness and the unity of Christ. That's not the gospel. I don't know about you, but you know, uh, I found myself the last few years uh, especially angry with certain groups of Christians because of the, the views that they've been holding. I, I have a really hard time identifying myself uh, with certain groups. And I need these words because I'm doing the same thing. I'm excluding them. I'm saying unless you are as progressive and as thoughtful and as, you know, loving as I am, you're out. That is not the gospel. What matters, all that matters, is your new identity in Jesus Christ. That is what binds you and me together. Not our political affiliation, not our ethnic distinctiveness, not our social or marital status, nor any other marker. We are one in Christ. Many years ago, um, a woman at my church, not this church, so it was a long time ago, uh, shared with me about a conference she attended where as one of the activities, they had to choose about a half a dozen uh, words, these big, broad, categorical words to describe uh, themselves. And so as I recall, the words that she chose to describe herself to the group were woman, Korean, mother, wife, then her job, which I can't remember anymore, and then lastly, a deacon of the church, in that order. And so they had to order the words in the uh, importance of how they self-identify. And she said that the revelation for her in listing these words was that she realized that her gender, being a woman, trumped all of the other categories. That that was the the most important way that uh, influenced her thinking, her life, everything. And then the other words that follow. Um, And she shared how it was interesting to her that none of the other Korean women... Uh, at the conference, listed women at the top of the list, that she was the only one who had done that. Um, Now, what was more interesting for me was the fact that her Christian identity, that of being a deacon in the church, was like number five or number six. It was at the bottom of the list. After her gender, after her role, uh, relational roles as mother, as wife, her job, her ethnicity. You know, she was a pretty active member of the church, so I thought it would be at least a little bit higher. But in her self-identification, being a Christian did not color the rest of that list. The rest of that list colored her being a Christian. 
I think she was being honest. Right? But I think what Paul is saying here is that that can't, that's not right. That the foundation of our identity must begin with being in Christ. That being a Christian, right, being in Christ should trump, must have priority over our ethnicity, our social status, our relational roles, our gender, our jobs, our everything else. That's who we are. And I know this is hard. Um, Again, I remember when I was a youth pastor at a Korean church, I remember one of the questions I used to ask the parents, um, and I would always get the same answer. I would ask these uh, Korean parents to, uh, if they had a choice between their children marrying a Korean non-Christian or marrying a non-Korean Christian, which would you choose? And every single parent told me, non-Christian Korean. That can't be. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. Because when you do that, now you're back to the law. You know, I told my kids this. I know that at the end of the day, that they're going to marry whoever they want to. I know this. <laughs> and I will have limited input into their choices. I, I accept that. But I told them, insofar as it's possible, insofar as that they're willing to take some advice from me, I said, the only thing that I ask of you is that you marry a Christian. I don't care if they're black or white, purple or green, male, female, I don't care. But I said, please marry a Christian. That's the only qualifier. And I'm not talking about someone who's just kind of nominally Christian, who goes to church once in a while. I mean someone whose life is centered on Christ, who's trying to live into the image of Christ. That's all I want. Now, of course, that means that their lives have to have the same priority. Mine too. Mine too. So who are you? When you think about yourself, your sense of self, your identity, are your first thoughts and is your entire identity shaped by that you are in Christ and belong to Christ? Or is it your ethnicity or some other aspect of your life that first comes to mind and is that the one that dominates your self-understanding? Paul says, this is who you are. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are by faith Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. That is who you are. That is who you are. Let's live into that reality. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your uh, word once again and the reminder once again that we are in you. That our hope, our only hope, 
is that we belong to you, that you have claimed us, that you made a promise that you declare us righteous by faith, by grace in Jesus Christ. And so help us to cling to that truth. Help us to build our lives around that truth. Help us to find comfort in that truth. That we are yours, now and forever, because of what Christ has done for us. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.